the Black Scholars Podcast. BlackScholarsPublishing.com That uh, we should get our own. Once we have our own, uh, we're respected for the fact that we can create our own. And uh, that's equality right there. Welcome, 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 welcome back to the Black Scholars Podcast. I am your host, Leonard Andre Wilson Jr. Shout out to my fellow black and brown educators and scholars. We have peaked past 10,000 downloads. This has been a long ride. But I am extremely grateful. In hindsight, looking back at last year, 2019, I believe I only published nine or ten episodes. Now I'm moving at a rapid pace thanks to COVID-19 and quarantine and the entire pandemic. This is episode 39 as we continue to break down the America to me series. Today we're going to look at episode 5. Episode 5 is called I Don't Have to Think About Being White. In this episode, we're introduced to a couple of new students or new characters. One is Caroline, who's a freshman. She's in mostly honors classes. She's in four clubs. She has an older sister who's in college. And she's expected, and she pushes herself as well, to do very well academically. We've seen it before. And I should be clear, these two new students that we've been introduced to are white. And we even get a chance to see the filmmakers interview potential students and their families to be, you know, followed on the show. We also have another appearance from Dr. Holland, the assistant principal who left Oak Park River Forest. And it was her recommendation that they also follow white students as well. I thought about, yeah, they should follow white students, but I thought, well, why would Dr. Holland bring that up? And then she mentioned equity. And what we need to realize is that equity is an issue for all students. So by the end of this particular episode, where we get to learn more about Caroline and her family and what motivates her, her family's not in the best economic situation. They live modestly in what appears to be a regularly sized home. They don't mention much about mom and her career, but we do know that Caroline's dad lost his job in 2008 and 
in his own words, he was working three jobs, one at Home Depot, trying to make ends meet. Now, he recently, at the time of the filming of this documentary, bounced back with the job in architecture. But it's the exact same reason for since the show existed, pre-10,000 downloads, I've always said it's important to keep a side hustle. It's important to own your own business. It's important to explore um, your own talents, gifts, skills, passions, acquire new skills. Because when you depend on one source to fund your lifestyle and your loves one and your loved ones, you're playing a dangerous game of capitalism. You're playing a dangerous game. How capitalism is set up, how this economy is set up, how in inflation is set up, the price of that dollar, it keeps shrinking. It keeps shrinking. So you have to continue to grow the number of streams of income as much as possible to help avoid that situation that Caroline Dad got in. But thus far, again, this is our first episode seeing Caroline. I like her. I like her family. I like the focus that she has. And she has a great role model in her sister who got, seems like a full ride or at least a lot of scholarships uh, to attend college. The second student that we get to introduce to is Brandon. Brandon is a sophomore. Again, he is a, a white kid. Um, which is different than what we've seen previously. And Brandon struggles to stay focused. Again, his own words. He struggles to be his best academically. He's not a strong student. However, he is an athlete. He plays baseball. He's a pitcher. Um, he seems to be a very talented pitcher. Um, less talented than he thought he was, again, according to his own words. And we just kind of see a dichotomy between uh, a, a female student and a male student and one who's very academically focused and who has a fear in Caroline of being average. It's the thing that, that drives me. It's the thing that I try to um, uh, engraft in my students. Don't be mediocre. Don't be average. We live in a society where being mediocre, being average is almost revered. It's praised and it, it's bewildering. Maybe I was built, born in the wrong decade or the wrong generation uh, being born in the 80s, but how I was brought up is that being average is not good enough. And I see that in Caroline. She doesn't want to be average. So she's pushing herself. She's got a role model. She's got good parents. They have a modest way of living. And she's humble about it. So if anything I take away from this show, from this episode, and this episode is called, I don't have to think about being white. When I think about that title, I think about that central idea. I don't have to think about being white. There's a difference and there's similarities. And what I mean by that is there are, is a difference clearly between Caroline and Brandon. Brandon's not academically astute, a stout. But Caroline is. And she keeps pushing herself, pushing herself, pushing herself. Brandon, on the other hand, he's kind of struggling for motivation. But they're no different 
than many of the African-American students we've been following between uh, Jada and Keyshawn and Kendall and Charles. No difference. The other thing that was uh, important in this show I'd like to highlight is the reading class. Again, taught by two general education teachers. And in this reading class, they said themselves, and they get it, they don't feel sorry for their students. Which, er, reverse, go back to the previous episode with Dr. Foster, as we broke down episode four, we had the physics science teacher saying that he feels pressured or that teachers or white teachers feel pressured to save black kids, to save or fix the black race. No, that's not your job. No, white man, we don't need you to do that. And I think it's what's hard is because I think we get a lot of pressure here as teachers to like make a difference, to like fix black people, to improve scores. We're not given any ways to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's someone who's very aware, like you, you could be a great resource. Not to blame that specific science teacher, but historically, you're part of the problem. And I'm saying that without us fully knowing his heritage. But just speaking in white in general, as a majority, a majority power, you're the reason why we are in the situation that we are in. Some of the stuff is, you know, we should have already called ourselves out of. But in the black community, it's like you take two steps forward and you get knocked three steps back. You get a little money. You start doing well for yourself. You get a career. You publish a book that does better than normal. And you're making a lot of money. Boom. Here comes the IRS. You start making a lot of money. Boom. Somebody gets really, really sick and doesn't have insurance and you love them. And so you're going you're gonna to fit the bill or you get sick. And now you've got unnecessary, unexpected debt. It's just, it's how it works. And it doesn't just happen in black America, but as a black man, as a black educator, I speak from the black experience. And that's what makes this podcast very unique. So this reading class, they get it. The white teachers get it. They say it themselves. You have to hold these kids accountable. You have to. It doesn't matter their race, their origin, their native language where they come from, their academic records before they got to Oak Park River Forest, none of that matters. You have to hold every kid accountable. You cannot lower expectations. That's got to be the model as we go into this 2020-21 school year is you cannot lower expectations. We lost instructional time. We did. It happened. We'll probably lose more instructional time. Yeah, probably going to happen. If these scientific reports are accurate, it's probably going to happen. But we do not, as the instructional leaders of our classroom, or as the instructional leaders of our school or districts, we will never lower expectations. We will always meet the kids where they are, and we will provide them with the instruction, the curriculum, the strategies, the intervention, the enrichment that they need, each individual student needs, and we will raise their performance. We will raise their self-confidence. We will raise their self-efficacy. Expectations will always remain high. 
That's how you close the achievement gap. Theoretically, that's how you close the achievement gap. The other thing I'd like to highlight is that both of these parents, uh, both of these teachers, excuse me, are products of Oak Park River Forest. I love to see it. I would have loved to teach at my old high school, to teach at my own uh, previous middle school, which is a gifted and talented middle school. I would love to have been an English teacher there. Oh, my God. It would have been awesome. But I moved. And I'm not going back. <laughs> now let's talk about Terrence. So we see Terrence a couple of times. One, he has failed, uh, looks like the first semester of his English class. No um, su surprise there. The other thing is we see him with an assistive technology specialist, Lisa Vincent. And she's modeling with Terrence. She's showing him his data, his speed of reading, using his assistive technology. And she's also setting goals and writing down steps that he needs to execute next with the use of his assistive technology. So I just wanted to highlight that again, reiterating it's important to always model for kids, to role play with kids, to discuss students' data, and in that discussion, explain it and have them explain it to you as well. And also to set goals with students. It's really the fabric of not only building rapport, but making students students. In order for a student to improve, they have to know where they are. In order for a student to grow, they have to know where they are. And the parents need to know too. Data shouldn't just be for teachers and principals and certain officials from central office. Data should be widespread, publicized, analyzed, thoroughly discussed, and it should be used to plan next steps, instructionally, curriculum-wise, school-wise. It's important. Every educator that listens to this podcast you have to be data-driven. You just have to. If you're going to be an effective or highly effective educator, you have to be data-driven. What does the data say? And I'll be honest, when I first started teaching, I started out as a special education teacher. My perspective on data is way different than it is right now. Of course, I'm 10 years in now. But when I first started, I remember there was an interview I had. And I'm on a tangent right now. There was an interview I had. And part of the interview, it was about 10 educators in there. It was like a group interview, and then they broke us up into separate one-on-one -on -one interviews. And part of the group task was for us to analyze data as if we're in a PLC and to speak about it. So they gave us a few minutes to study the data. It was something about math. It was math data for a whole school. And they wanted us, they just gave us the, the data. I don't know if it was real or if it was fabricated. But I remember being in that interview and honestly, guys, 
this is very early in my career. I didn't have much to say. I didn't have much to say. I wasn't confident because I didn't teach math. I'm good at math, but it's a difference in being good at a subject and not teach it. Like I have a great appreciation for art. I love art. I can analyze art. I can write about art. But I I can't really create visual art. I can't draw like I used to when I was a kid. I can't paint like I used to when I was a kid. It's the difference between being comfortable on the subject enough to actually participate and study it and being comfortable on the subject where you can teach it. Fast forward 10 years later, you put me in that same interview situation, in which case I have had similar interviews like that where I've been asked to analyze data. And because I've had the repetition, thanks to my previous middle school that I worked at and my former principal who has resigned, she's retired from being a principal. She's still in education and she's going to be training other principals. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be as data driven and knowledgeable about data and about how important the numbers are to an entire school and the perception of a school and even internally to know is the school functioning like it should? Is the school serving the kids in the community like it should? It's in the data. So shout out to my former principal, Mrs. Sparkman. I love you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. So yeah, again, Lisa Vincent, the assistant technology specialist, is working with Terrence, modeling, showing him the data. We've got to figure this out, whether we're doing a virtual school, it's a hybrid model, it's face-to-face with uh, social distancing as our number one priority, collecting data and getting students to know and use it. That's my specialty. But that took years of trial and error for me to get to that point. So if you're a young educator and you don't feel comfortable with data, Um, There are a few books I can recommend for you to read. Um, There are a few videos and resources I can recommend online for you to take a look at um, that will get you to that level you need to be to be a highly effective or effective educator. All right. The other pressing issue. And we're, we're heating up. We're heating up. We're heating up. Keyshawn. So we get a chance to see his mother. Again, his mother attended... Uh, Oak Park River Forest for a very short time period. We're finally introduced to the fact that Keyshawn has siblings. He has a brother who looks just like him, and he has a sister as well. And the sister is a senior, and she's doing extremely well. We've never seen her until now. But they're having a socioeconomic issue. And this is important now and 2020 because we have so many who have been laid off of work or furloughed from work and they're collecting unemployment checks and in addition to collecting the you know original amount for unemployment according to their state guidelines there was an additional fund for the COVID-19 so allegedly those who have been receiving unemployment have been receiving an additional $600 per paycheck per week okay that money's about to dry up. That money's about to end. So it has felt like we are 
doing fine. We're not in an economic recession because you're still able to pay your bills. You're still able to feed your family. You're still hopefully able to save something. I see a lot of people online doing investments, whether that's Robinhood or um, Forex trading. They're doing some type of investing, right? Or maybe they've stopped, but they're able to still save some. And most importantly, keep a roof over your head, keep everybody well-fed, keep everybody clean, and you're able to move on within respect to what's going on with the global pandemic. It's going to look vastly different when that money is gone. When that extra $600 per week disappears. We're talking about an extra $2,400 a month. Which makes a big difference regardless of what state or region you're in. It makes a huge difference. So Keyshawn and his family, they live in Oak Park. They live in this town. They live in this area, which allows Keyshawn to attend Oak Park River High. But now they might have to move back to the hood. Now they might have to move back to the inner city of Chicago. Or not necessarily the inner city, they might have to move to West Chicago, where the violence is just as threatening as any other part of Chicago. And his mother proposes this question. If they have to move back to the hood, what is going to happen to Keyshawn? He's a junior in high school. He's, a, he's of the ripe age where if he lives in a bad neighborhood, he automatically is going to be enlisted in a neighborhood gang. That's how Chicago works. I said it last episode. I'll say it again. I've been studying crime in the city of Chicago for, I want to say, at least eight years. Sometimes I just get intrigued and I just study. It might not even necessarily be for a future book. It might not be for a future project. But once I get fascinated with something, I'm a scholar. I am going to study. So his mother has every right to feel nervous, apprehensive. Fearful of what could happen to not just Keyshawn, but either his sister or his younger brother. And his younger brother is not too far behind Keyshawn. He's not too far behind. And when we talk about, again, back to the title of the show, I don't have to think about being white. Well, guess what, guys? We do have to think about being black. We have to think about it often. When I drive down in the neighborhood I live in, uh, I'm not saying I live in a wealthy area, but I live in an area where there are a lot of uh, Caucasians. There's black people here too, but this area is predominantly white. And again, it's not a super wealthy, affluent area. 
But when I'm driving down the street and I see an officer, I see a cop car, I automatically think, am my plates up to date? My insurance? Oh, I've got it on the app. I've got to be able to pull that up. I got my driver's license on me. Can I fill my wallet? What was that shortcut that I set up on my iPhone? So I could have, you know, things recorded. My mother's going to be contacted. My significant other is going to be contacted. My father's going to be contacted. And then a video automatically is going to be sent to Facebook. Yeah, I set that shortcut up. I had to. Just in case. Because that's the time that we live in. Whereas a black man, black woman, you have to worry about your physical safety. And I'm not a small guy at all. 6'1", 220 pounds plus. Uh, I've done kickboxing for years. Former athlete. I can defend myself and protect my loved ones just fine. Physically. But when you're dealing with an officer of the law. You have to overthink. You're hesitant to react. And so it makes it difficult to defend yourself and defend your loved ones. If you are a black American. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't. So my heart goes out. To Keyshawn and his family and his mother when she looks in the camera and she asks that very solemn question. If we move back to the hood, what about Keyshawn's future? Because he won't have a choice when you live in one of those neighborhoods. You have to join your local gang or they will attack you. They will put the pressure on your family. You know, every weekend in Chicago, at least this summer, and it's happened in previous summers too, and it's nerve-wracking. Man, we see the same headlines over and over and over again. I think I seen one this morning or last night. 71, 72 shot in Chicago. While we're in the middle of a pandemic, why is anyone outside? How many kids have to be hit by a bullet? How many innocent lives have to be lost or threatened in order for us to to get it? We yell, we yell, we yell. We march, we protest, we tweet. With the potency of the words, black lives matter. Keyshawn's life matters. In that of his siblings. And of everyone, right? That's the purpose of black lives matter. All lives matter. But we have to say black lives matter because this society has shown that black lives do not matter. And when the powers that be try to rip your humanity from you as children of God, we have no choice but to fight against that. 
That's what Black Lives Matter means. That's what the equity that Dr. Holland is talking about. So, let me repeat the title of this show one more time, of this episode. I don't have to think about being white. Again, we have to think about being black. So the final topic I want to discuss about this episode, and this is the part where my mouth dropped. And I said, what on God's green earth is going on here? We got the basketball game versus Fenwick. So Fenwick is, you know, a quote unquote perfect school, uh, religious school. And there's even, I don't know if he was a priest. I don't know if it was one of the educators at the school or a parent, but this guy was dressed in some religious garb to go get a hot dog and nachos or whatever he was buying from the concession stands. And it's like, what is going on? So the camera takes us to, the filmmakers take us to one of the leadership classes and the leadership class is taught by the head football coach which he appears to be a really great guy. He gets it. And what's discovered is he missed the day of school, but everyone was blowing up his phone. He was at a funeral. And so he's asking his leadership class, okay, something happened at that basketball game. I need you guys to provide me the details. So, and this is beautiful filmmaking, by the way. Shout out to the filmmakers of this. Beautiful filmmaking. So it's being narrated by several of the students in this leadership class as we go to footage of everything that happened. And so first, the kids met up about 445. They took the train to the game on the other side of town. Okay? And it was crowded. It was a rambunctious group, to say the least. So I'm like, okay, I remember doing that in high school. I remember doing that. Not a train, but everybody gets on the bus. We're headed to the other side of town. We want to support our basketball team in a heated rivalry. I've been there. I've been there. On both sides. I've been there. As a player and as a fan. I've been there. And so... Then things get a little um, peculiar, to say the least. She said, there were kids drinking. We're referring to in high school, right? Not a community college, not a four-year college, not a university, not a professional school. This isn't law or med school. These are high schoolers, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, 14-year-olds. They were drinking. Where'd they get the liquor? Even if these kids are somewhat affluent, privileged, where did they get the liquor? I know where they got the liquor. They got it from their parents' cabin, I bet. Or maybe somebody has a fake ID. This is 2015. They probably had a fake ID or a combination of both. So kids are drinking. The girl in the leadership class who's narrating this says her friend blacked out and had to go to a hospital 
and my jaw is dropping furthermore. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know Oak Park was lit like that. These kids are drinking in high school? I wasn't drinking in high school. Seriously? Okay. Continue the story. And what was observed after was some of the most confusing, um, bewildering, jaw-dropping, appalling, disgusting verbiage and rhetoric back and forth I've seen in a long time. And let me tell you guys, you guys know, high school basketball games are dangerous for a multitude of reasons. They're dangerous. They're extremely dangerous. You have parents who are graduates of these high schools and their parents went there and their parents' parents went there. And so they spent generations of their lineage attending these schools, carrying the tradition, rooting for their team. And that's how the rivalry is built. So this is a rivalry that's existed for quite some time. And so on one side, you have Oak Park and they're chanting. And on the other side, you have Fenwick and they're all dressed in Christmas garb. But it wasn't December. It wasn't Christmas. But they were all dressed in, and maybe it was December. But it definitely wasn't Christmas. I know because that's what Oak Park was yelling from this side. It's not Christmas. It's not Christmas. The main problems with Fenwick is because they're in the same town as us, and they've made it to be this whole like crosstown rival thing. There's this real big tension because Fenwick kind of looks down on OPR, kind of like this bad school, like this almost ghetto school, and then Fenwick's kind of like this like religious school where like, everything's perfect. They'll say anything racist, but there's there's definitely a race aspect. So it just gets worse and worse. Like they start saying, like, you're gonna pump our gas one day. So basically saying that you're lower than us. And every year there's fights after. They kind of had this chance saying parking lot, like go to the parking lot so we can fight. Last year was ridiculous. I remember walking out of the pavilion. I saw my buddy, like a priest shoved him to kind of like get like get the OPRF crowd like back and he just punched the priest. But on the other side, they said the following. Fenwick, this is Fenwick. This is the religious perfect school. This is our town. Mm. 
that's got some religious, or excuse me, not religious. That's got some racial undertones. This is our town. We own this. God's on our side. Ooh. I don't want to expound on that too much. We'll be here all night. Fenwick rejects. And the part that had me pause the documentary. ACT scores. And what's interesting when you watch that part, there are a couple of students in the Fenwick section that will not say it. And one girl with blonde hair is taking her hand and she's kind of shaking it across her throat like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go that far. But the fact that so many kids, one, would either, either come up with that and then actually say that and execute that chant, ACT scores? Remember, we've got, we're on the path at Oak Park River, River Forest High, where there's a 75-year gap to get black students to catch up with white students in terms of ACT composite scores. And we got Fenwick calling them Fenwick rejects and then chanting ACT scores. And then they didn't show it, but some of the students are saying, they're also saying, you're going to you know, pump gas for us one day. You're going to work for us one day. And just yelling all types of hateful, elitist chants and phrases. That is ugly. I couldn't imagine being a coach or a parent or an educator there on either side. And you didn't see any parent or adult as far as they showed, as far as the film. They didn't show anybody trying to stop it. I mean, even if I'm the announcer, I feel like at a high school game, I'm going to have to say, somebody's going to have to say something. If I'm a coach of either one of these basketball teams, somebody has got to say something. So to no surprise, at the very end, everyone that attends Oak Park River Forest, they're yelling F Fenwick and they're ready to fight, especially because guess what? They lost the basketball game. They felt attacked. And that crowd on both sides was predominantly white. And on Fenwick's side, I don't even want to call it predominantly. I'm be honest with you guys, with you guys. I don't think I've seen one black kid or adult on the Fenwick side. Of course, there are a few at the Oak Park River Forest side. I'm just glad Keyshawn and Kendall and I'm glad they weren't there. But there were some black kids there. And so the Fenwick section, those students, they wouldn't come out. And so the police came. And so, again, let's go back to the leadership class. And so the gym teacher or not gym teacher, um, the football coach the leadership teacher is saying, you know, that crowd was predominantly white. What if it were predominantly black? How would that have been handled? And we know very much so 
how that would have been handled specifically by Chicago PD. We already know. Again, the title, I don't have to think about being white. But guess what? We have to think about being black. But that was so ugly. You know, we talk about oppression, racism, equity versus uh, equality. These are the, the, the hot topics. These are the pressing issues in education and in society. But when are we going to talk about classism, elitism? You know, no one wants to say it. But I'm going to say it, America is a somewhat unorthodox, but still a caste system. Now you can do some things and you can kind of, you can kind of break your way out of poverty. It's possible here. That's why we don't call it a caste system, right? Because you can, you can break yourself out of poverty, right? For the most part. It's possible. But even then, how far can you break yourself out? We've only got a few billionaires that are African-American. We've only got a few, a handful in the world. We only got a few. The world is effectively a caste system. Because at this point, we all participate in capitalism. And you can't become a billionaire, theoretically, without someone being oppressed. But the elitism that was displayed at this basketball game was disgusting. Filled with rhetoric strong enough to make you want to throw up. I felt like vomiting. It was disgusting behavior. So it's understandable that the principal was upset. But guess what? He was at the game. And I'm not saying he didn't try to intervene. But we had no footage of that. And my opinion of the principal of Oak Park River Forest. As well as the superintendent of this district. Is the same. And, and it may not change by the end of this thing. And maybe because I'm in the process, I'm making that transition into leadership and I'm studying it and I'm paying attention to it with, with, with attention to detail. But I'm not seeing the leadership doing the, I guess, eye tests. The eye test for the principal and superintendent don't look good from my perspective right now. And you talk about leadership? You talk about leadership? And you're fussing out a leadership class? Where, where is the leadership? You know, and this is my last point. Schools are supposed to serve the community. They're supposed to provide comprehensive services to the community and to the families that belong 
and live in that community. So if you have a family, case in point, Keyshawn's family, who is at risk of losing their house and may have to move and transfer schools during his junior year, during his, during his sister's senior year, And Keyshawn's a knucklehead, but he's receiving, for the most part, because we can argue against this, the education he's supposed to receive. He's receiving a better education at Oak Park River Forest than probably wherever he would be zoned to attend school in Chicago public school system. But if the school is doing what it's supposed to do, if the school district is doing the needed comprehensive services, providing those services for his family, he wouldn't have this stress. There's no reason why a 16, 17-year-old should ever worry about where they lay their head at night. They shouldn't worry about food. They shouldn't worry about utilities. They shouldn't worry about hot water. They shouldn't worry about the phone being cut off. They shouldn't worry about not having Wi-Fi. They should not have to worry about that. Ever. They just shouldn't. If this country is really number one, if this country, this nation, is really supposed to be the best in the universe, the best on the planet, prove it. Prove it. Fully fund these schools. Put leaders in these schools that are ready to do transformational work. To be a principal, to be a leader of a school means you're a leader of that community. To be a superintendent means you are a leader in that city or town. To be on a school board, to be in legislation, and to vote for these bills, to enact these educational policies that families and students and educators have to follow and live by. This is about servitude. You can't, honestly, whether you're, honest, I'm going to be honest with y'all. You can't be in education and be effective at what you do if you don't believe in God. Oh, man. I had to say it. And I'm not even coming at you from a, a Christian perspective. I don't care what you believe in. 
but you have to believe in some type of higher power in order to do this work. Long term. Now, if you're, you know, two year Teach for America, one of these accelerated programs, and I'm a product of an accelerated program. I'm a product of the new teacher project, which is very similar to Teach for America. But this I knew was going to be my career. I never had intentions of getting in for two years and ending it. That wasn't my intentions. And I, I feel confident in saying anyone who listens to this podcast on a consistent basis, that was never your intentions either. And I know life happens. Other opportunities pop up. I've said it. I'll say it again. I left education for two years and I came right back and I've been in it ever since. I should have 12 years under my belt, 12, 13 years under my belt instead of 10. Going into year 10. So, I don't have to think about being white. Wow. This was a, a powerful episode, specifically toward the end. Especially the end. Very, very powerful. So, episode six, we will be back, which will be episode 40. Until then, follow me on Instagram at Black Scholars Podcast, Twitter, BLK Scholars Pod, Facebook, just type in the search bar, the Black Scholars Podcast. Same thing for YouTube. Thank you for everyone who has been supporting the podcast through the Black Scholars Clothing. I appreciate you so much. I am so glad that you enjoyed the designs. I appreciate you guys so much. You're motivating me to keep going. And there are bigger things in store. If you guys need me, you know how to reach me. Either on social media or feel free to email me at the Black Scholars Podcast at gmail.com. Again, the Black Scholars Podcast at gmail.com. This is episode 39, and I'm out. What can I say? Mamba out. Thank you for listening to the Black Scholars Podcast. For more information, Sometimes. go to blackscholarspublishing.com. So the ones don't slave in our history, one no slave ships, one no misery.